Hi, I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal at Navigator's Calgary office. And I'm Lauren Olheiser, a partner with Gowling WLG in Calgary. Welcome to the second episode of The Energy Exchange, a podcast between Navigator and Gowlings, where Lauren and I explore the energy transition in Canada and what it means for our industries, our climate change goals, and our future. Today, we've invited a special guest to join us for this episode as we dive into the world of electric vehicles, energy consumption, and the accessibility of Canada's energy transition. Kara Clareman is the president and CEO of Plug and Drive, a nonprofit that is accelerating the deployment of EVs to maximize their environmental and economic benefits. Kara has more than 20 years of experience working in the environmental and sustainability fields, including 12 years working at Ontario Power Generations. I should point out that Kara is currently driving the 100% electric Nissan Leaf as her personal car and the 100% electrical Mitsubishi iMeve for business. Well, hi, Kara, and thanks for joining us. Why don't we just start with this conversation a little bit about what Plug and Drive is doing and the kind of its place and, and status of the industry. You can kind of give us that overview of what you're seeing at present, and we can kind of talk a bit about present and future, but I think we might as well start with present day and, and work forward from there. Sure. Well, thanks, Lauren, so much for inviting me. So Plug and Drive is a nonprofit. We're all about accelerating EV adoption and we do that primarily through consumer outreach and education, which involves really as simple as butts and seats. We offer test drives at our facility in Toronto, which is like a try to imagine science center meets car showroom, a facility where people can learn and test drive cars with no pressure to buy anything. And then we have sort of a roaming show, our mobile EV education trailer or meet out and about in uh, various cities across Canada. So we uh, we just are out there trying to help those consumers make the switch. Carrie, you've been you guys have been around actually for I think over a decade now. So I, I guess the question I would say is or ask you is is you must have seen so much change. And how excited are you about kind of where we are now? Because you know I, I'm not sure I saw a lot of EVs uh, ten years ago, if I recall. Well, that's true. And in those early days, we definitely got a lot of blank stares when we would pop up at Young and Dundas Square, the Green Living Show, trying to, we had two cars and a charger trying to show people what the future might look like. It's definitely gotten a lot easier. I wish I could say it had changed as much as I would like to have seen it changed. Um, I still find a lot of consumers have the very same questions they had 10 years ago and same concerns and still lots of hesitations. Uh, the pluses is we have like way more choice, way more opportunities for different makes and models, lots of infrastructure available. So really there's like absolutely no reason now for people not to make the switch, but I still find myself in the position of convincing, convincing people that it's time. Well, and I wanted to talk a bit about that, about, you know, there's a couple spots here. There's Jason and I have talked about carrots and sticks and associated carrots that might be offered for EV and EV adoption. You know, cost, I think, has been an obstacle. I think that's an obstacle that's being worked on. But I'm kind of curious about your views on obstacles, because as you've said, it's improved over the course of time. And I think, you know, we sort of all see it trending, continuing to trend in that direction. I'm kind of curious about your views as the sort of the biggest options that need to be worn down and uh, what kind of progress we're making on those. Yeah, like I would say we did some surveying over the years, you know, so we've been able to see the trends. 
And, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, there were a lot more concerns about range and concerns about makes and models. You know, there isn't one that I like, or I'm waiting for the SUV, or I'm a fan of Toyota and they don't have it. You know, what there were, there were those types of concerns. And I would say those have really uh, reduced and they're going away. You know, we're, we're seeing uh, every brand pretty much has a car and plans for many, many more. So that we hear less and less about the range, you know, the batteries have really improved. So many vehicles with 300, 400, even 500 kilometers of range. So that's going away as an issue. Infrastructure is really improving. We still need to do work on that, but it's, it's definitely a lot better than it was. Price remains a, a, a challenge. It's been a challenge all along, even though EVs are much cheaper to operate than gas cars. And when you do the full math on the total cost of ownership, they're actually cheaper today, even without incentives. But the challenge is explaining to people, pay now to save later. And, uh, and that's just not an easy story to tell. So we, we've tried all sorts of things to try to show the savings, but, um, but that's, a, that's a big, big challenge still. I'd like to dive into that a little more, Kara. You know, when we, we, we know that the, the government has got some great goals out there, uh, I think as much as 50% of uh, cars that are going to be sold in Canada, they're hoping by 2035 would be EVs. But I want to pick... Oh, 100%. 100% sorry, yes, I said 50. By, 20, uh, by 2035, yeah. 2035. So, but... It, you know, you talk about this outlet, those barriers and, you know, that upfront outlay of cash. Well, not all Canadians can afford that outlay right. uh, yeah. out front. So how do we avoid as we develop this industry and get to that 100%, how do we how do we avoid leaving people behind? I mean, in the weeks and months that have preceded these podcasts, we've seen lots of division in North America, you know, in Canada here as well. And, you know, when you think about the needs of, of maybe Canadians don't have the same income that others might in yeah. order to, to do that. And also, you know, some of the needs of, of rural Alberta and supporting some of the industry farms, the agriculture. How do we overcome those challenges? Sure. So here's what I would say is there's a lot of Canadians who can't afford a new car, period. Yes. Uh, gas or electric. And so, you know, that's a challenge no matter what kind of car. And what I would say on that is there's there's a few things we can do. First of all, used EVs are available and affordable. And a lot of people don't realize there's quite a good selection of used EVs uh, available now. We've been in the market 10 years. There's There's quite a bit. So that's one opportunity. And we've been really pushing the governments to have a rebate on use because it's more affordable for more people and provide sort of that equitable, more equitable answer. So that's one thing. Um, in terms of new, there's opportunities with rebates from governments, which definitely help, you know, with that upfront cost. And another thing is, you know, better leasing and, uh, you know, financing rates from, from banks. There's really right now, actually, EVs are more expensive to finance than a gas car. And the reason is, well, because they can, because they're in high demand and people are willing to pay it, but there's really no justification for it. So we'd like to see some progressive financing. We know that EVs, you save over time. So why not a financing that instead of starting high and ending low, starts low and ends high? You know, that there's there's ways to finance a vehicle that might be more affordable. 
those are really nuts and bolts practical things that I think the individual consumer obviously looks at day to day. I want to turn a little bit to the maybe the more macro side of this about the the grid and the distribution, uh, you know, electricity, energy distribution piece of this, um, you know, the Ford F-150, I was, I watched it actually on YouTube when yeah. they rolled it out. I thought that was pretty cool. Pretty and cool. I think obviously one of the cool things that I didn't see coming, I don't watch the auto industry that closely, but sort of the ability about it being a battery storage element was quite interesting to me. And I think I wonder about you know, the, the grid, um, I guess I've got kind of two questions, but one is your thought about widespread adoption of EVs and the grid's current capabilities of handling that. And does the potential of vehicles being battery storage units solve the problem, assuming that that actually is a problem? Uh, I'm kind of curious if yeah, what you can yeah. share with people about that, because I th- sure. it's a real game changer in my mind. It, it is. So first on the grid. So, uh, you know, I come from the electricity sector, so this is something that I do follow. And in most parts of the country, not not everywhere, but in most parts of the country, generation is not really a problem, at least not right now. Uh, Doesn't mean it won't be at some point, but let's just take Ontario where where I am. Uh, Ontario has a huge surplus on the grid at night. Uh, because we run nuclear and hydro, which runs pretty much 24-7. So when you shut down everything over the daytime, you get to nighttime, we have a surplus that we, in fact, dump into New York State, into Michigan, and into Quebec at a loss of money pretty much every night. And so actually, people plugging in their EVs at night, which is, of course, when they will do it, because that's when it's convenient, that's when it's cheapest, um, that actually does the grid a favor. Because it sucks up that surplus baseload, it's uh, it helps to balance out the use of the assets, the energy assets. It it provides money to the local economy. There's a whole bunch of good things that it does. So, uh, in fact, it's actually a grid benefit uh, at this point. Now, at some point, we won't have a big surplus at night. Uh, Pickering's going to come out of service in a certain number of years. There's you know so so. And other jurisdictions don't necessarily have the surplus at night that we have here in Ontario. So at some point, it's a problem. But what I will tell you right now is it isn't. And the only problems there are are very localized in terms of distribution networks in the older cities. So take Toronto, take Ottawa, you know, Kingston. There's some areas of the grid that have difficulties because they're old and it just requires good planning. You know, some transformers will have to be upgraded, uh, but that can totally be managed if the utility knows where the EVs are, which they don't necessarily know right now. So that's something that they have to work on finding out uh, so that they can plan. So do you see that planning taking place now, Kara? Like, you know, I I appreciate your focus in Ontario, and I think that's that's going to be one of the the key leads, obviously, in this. But when we think about, you know, the overhaul that you described, or at least in part working on transformers, updating updating the grid and the necessaries there, plus, you know, that 100% coming by 2035, I mean, that's soon. I mean, electrical generation and electrical projects, whether they be uh, SMR, small nuclear reactors, or hydro, I mean, these aren't facilities that are built quickly. and, And if it takes off the way you're hoping, we're going to see a real spike. So yes. y- you know where this conversation then goes vis-a-vis right. fossil fuels. So where do you see as the right. future? So look, yes, there will be a requirement for new generation for sure. And I sort of say, okay, 
that's that's fine like as long as we can plan for it i mean we would have to use fossil fuels or we have to build more generation and i would vote for building more generation especially if we can make it low to no greenhouse gas emitting uh so it, it's doable it, it requires as you say planning you have to look across the country at the assets available what what makes sense where you know solar doesn't make sense everywhere you know wind doesn't make sense everywhere hydro's good in certain you know some places just don't have it but uh lauren brought up this issue of v to g and potentially using the car batteries as a way to um, actually support the grid. And I think it's actually gonna be not just good to do, it's gonna be a must to do because first of all, I saw uh, just a fascinating presentation from a fellow named Professor Dom, who is uh, the research chair in batteries. Uh, it's a Tesla research chair, I believe at Dalhousie. And he was showing that something like 90% of the lithium around the world is going right now into EV batteries. And so if we're going to have storage of any kind, a lot of it is already going to be in car batteries. We won't be able to just rely on other storage or other batteries. There's not going to be enough batteries for that. We need to use the car batteries. And so uh, and also just from an economics point of view, you can imagine it's much cheaper to create battery storage where someone else has already paid for the battery. Uh, so that's an affordable source of storage. And so really it will make sense. It will make economic sense. It will make every kind of sense to take advantage of those batteries and aggregate them and use them for peaking, for example, or use them to prevent the building of the next gas plant, for example. So that, so that is definitely going to be necessary. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this, one of the key problems that has been for green tech uh, energy generation is storage. And, you know, I am not a technical guy, <laughs> that's for sure. I'm a lawyer. So some of it, I, you know, kind of rubs off when you hang out with a lot of engineers, I guess, but the smaller batteries, you know, the idea of, well, if you could just get a good battery, if you could get energy storage sorted out, then you get rid of some of these issues about intermittent production and peaks and these sorts of things yeah. get solved. And now if the, if you've broken the problem down into sort of these small modular pieces of, well, everybody's got a battery in their car and we'll just, and everybody's got a car. And so that's how we're going to solve it. It's like, that's why I described it earlier is that's ah, a real game changer. But again, totally you know, it, it, it goes back to the, um, you know, to focus on the carbon part of it, the the carbon part of it is as good only as the generation that's used to power the grid. And, um, you know, this, to my mind, at least has us in a all of the above kind of scenarios, because there's just the demand is, to my mind, where the bigger struggle is. I mean, there's, there's um, significant investment that's going to be required. I think we've kind of talked about this. I think you, you've sort of I, I think are on this path, which is smaller cities, older cities, uh, rural applications. The grid uh, works better in some places than others. These are high capital, long-term investments. It needs a lot. That's all fine. But that grid investment has to be powered. And that power that comes along, uh, you know, the, the energy that comes to power the grid yeah. is 
for at least a foreseeable period of time where I sit is, is going to be an all of the above, but transitioning away, you right, know, fossil right. fuels you are not, they're not renewable. That no, is just the you, way it if is. If you look at it though, I mean, Canada's in a really good position because we have about 80% of Canada wide electricity is already what they will say Nothing is zero. Okay, so I don't like yeah. saying non-emitting, but that's the terminology. So let's just call it non-emitting uh, electricity. So that's hydro, that's nuclear, that's wind, that's solar, that's everything, biomass, that's everything, everything except, let's say, oil, coal, and gas. So we're already at 80%. You know, Ontario got off coal, Alberta and Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia all have plans to, you know, get off it. And yep. so we're seeing, uh, you know, there's very few vehicles you can imagine. Even people say, well, it doesn't make sense to drive an EV in Alberta. That isn't true because even in Alberta, the whole grid isn't fossil. There's, there's plenty of other sources and it's reducing every year. So every year you drive your EV, it gets a little bit cleaner. You still make an emission reduction. You just don't make the giant emission reduction that you make if you drive an EV in Quebec or Ontario or British Columbia. Right. So, you know, to address some of these, these issues, and, and I hate spending so much time on barriers, right? Because the idea here is, is, to, is also to look forward. But, you know, going back to, to Lauren's comments about carrots and stick, and I mean, it's the great old age old debate for uh, when we look at government. And do you feel that if we have enough carrots, if you will, and not just on, on the incentive side to, to buy the vehicles, right. but also to build out that infrastructure to start looking at the need, future needs for electrical generation across the country to sure. get some uniformity to the grid? Mm-hmm. Or, or do we need more sticks? Where do you see the future? And does the government have to, are they giving enough or do they have to, how does it work in your mind? Well, you know, they're doing a lot of good things. So, you know, we want to first sort of give them a little bit of props because they've, you know, they're really funding the building of infrastructure across Canada, Intercan is. They're, uh, they've got the rebates, which really do help. The big challenge we have, I would say, is there's a lot of inequity across the country because you have provinces with provincial rebates that stack with the federal rebate. That would be primarily Quebec and British Columbia, and actually now PEI and a few others, but they're just getting started. And then you have the provinces that don't have that. And so if you want to buy an EV in Alberta, in uh, Manitoba, or in Ontario, for example, you're actually going to have a hard time finding one because the supply is all going to the rebate provinces. And so when you see, for example, you know, a new car being launched in Canada, they say launching in Quebec and British Columbia, because that's where they know they'll sell because they've got, you know, two levels of rebates. And so, you know, it would be really nice to level the playing field across the country so that everybody would have an opportunity to get an EV. So one of the things they can do to do that is this, what they call a ZEV standard or a ZEV mandate. And what that means is if you want to sell gas cars, you have to sell a certain percentage of EVs. And that would require dealers to have them on the lots, which uh, is what they do in California. And they have that in British Columbia and it works. So that's one thing they can do. Another area where I think we could really use some national support is the building code. I mean, you can't believe it's true, but here in Ontario, you can still build a condo or an apartment building without any infrastructure 
in the parking garage. Uh, there's no requirement even to rough it in. Now, here in Toronto and in many other urban centers, a very high percentage of people live in multi-unit. So if you really want people to buy EVs, you cannot have a situation where they can't get a plug at their at their parking spot. So, uh, you know, we need and, to And it have, must be a lot, sorry to interrupt here, but it must be a lot more expensive to then kind of oh, put it in after the fact. Isn't oh, it? it's like times 10, you know, it's roughing in is just putting the cable, you know, so that you can do it. You don't even have to put the chargers in, but if you rough in when you build a building, it is so much cheaper and only makes sense. So, so that could go into the national building code, which could then be, you know, sort of trickled to the, all the provincial building codes, which really, really needs to happen. And I mean, it's already happened in some provinces, but uh, for example, here in Ontario, we don't have that requirement. That uh, might carry us to a larger discussion about um, housing costs and uh, rising housing costs and inflation in Canada. But l- let's set that one aside because that's a whole other that's a whole other topic and a whole other, another podcast. Exactly. We've talked a lot about national. Um, I wonder if you've got thoughts or comments about you know the auto industry is here. You know. It, um, the U.S. and Canada are hand in glove associated with the mm-hmm. auto industry, and I'm wondering if you've got thoughts about whether it's global or whether it's Canada, U.S., but uh, how that progress is being made, or any things you see on the horizon that people might be interested in, in learning about um, in the EV world that they might not otherwise already have some knowledge of. Sure. Well, the the good news uh, on the manufacturing front is that you know there's been a lot of great announcements about manufacturing EVs here in Canada. So we have announcements from the big three American companies all saying they're going to be making EVs here. That's Ford, uh, GM, and uh, Stellantis, who was Chrysler, all announcing that within a year or two, their plants will be manufacturing EVs, which is great news for the auto sector here in uh, Canada. The less good news (laughs) is, you know, this, uh, this clause that was in the Build Back Better bill, which was, you know, right now it looks like it's not happening, but they were saying that the U.S. was going to have a buy American clause about the EVs so that only the EVs that were made in U.S. plants would actually get the U.S. rebate. And the vehicles we make in Canada, you know, 90 percent of them go to the states. So that was actually it would have been a huge blow to the Canadian manufacturers. And probably if it went ahead, some of those announcements we heard might not have ended up in reality, you know, happening. So hopefully um, that will, that particular clause, I mean, I hope the build back better does happen, but I, uh, I hope that clause will not go ahead. I hope that will be a North American by North American, not by American. Uh, because as you said, it's all integrated. I mean, it's impossible to separate yeah. these yeah. these two. Yeah, some some classic issues of competition and trade and hadn't thought of until you brought that up. But I think that's an important thing to make note of is right. it's, um, you know, th- there is uh, common interest, but there's also competition and trade For issues sure. that, that impact all this. Oh, that's For very sure. helpful. And on, to- on top of that, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, we hear the Ontario government talking about their manufacturing support, which I honestly is fantastic. But I think sometimes they are confused 
in that they think that doing that is actually support for people buying EVs here in Ontario. And I actually think they're completely separate. It's a, it's a great business strategy. It's excellent for the auto sector. It's great for jobs. It's an industrial uh, strategy, but it doesn't automatically mean because we manufacture EVs here in Canada, that people will buy them here. And we have to still do more things to support people actually switching uh, or else all those cars will go to the US or elsewhere. Uh, so we, we still need to do things like incent people. We need to have, uh, like I said, building code changes. We need to have free access to HOV lanes and other incentives, non-monetary incentives to encourage people to make the switch. So, Kara, in the, in the time that we have left here, tell us what the next 15 years look like as we head towards towards 2035. I'm going to ask you to put on, look oh, at your crystal, your crystal ball, <laughs> which is plugged in. It's not being run by combustion. Um, but it's, if you could look into that and, and just sort of tell us what you think, uh, what the next 15 years yeah. looks like. Well, I think we have reasons to be really optimistic. I mean, I think that 100% by 2035 is actually achievable. In fact, I'm part of a coalition of companies that are talking about 100% by 2030. And when I say 100%, it's 100% new sales. We're not saying that all the gas cars will be gone. Of course, they won't be. But in addition to the great opportunity, and like, don't forget all the amazing sort of ancillary benefits that come with that switch, which include health, public health benefits. When you start uh, switching, you take a huge bite out of air pollution, which actually reduces asthma, reduces hospital visits, reduces deaths. Like there's studies all over the world showing the health benefit. So we'll, we're going to get a whole bunch of ancillary benefits we haven't even calculated. We're going to also see electrification of buses and trucks. And that's a huge, huge emission reducer as well. So it's not just light duty, right? It's uh, medium and heavy duty delivery, school buses, a massive opportunity. There's something like 10,000 school buses driving a day just in Ontario alone. So it's a huge opportunity. They don't drive very far. They have a predictable route. They're perfect for electrification. So I think we're going to see a lot of these other areas electrify, uh, maybe even faster than light duty. And of course, we'll see the urban suburban do it quicker than rural. But I just want to say for the folks that think you can't do it, if you live rural, you totally can. I mean, I have a place out in the country. It's totally doable. Most of us, uh, the stats will tell you 80% of Canadians drive 50 kilometers or less a day, even people who live remote. They don't drive that much. They drive into town. You know, so so they drive less than they think they make long trips when they make them, but those are occasional. So and so many Canadian families have two cars that this is often not a huge barrier. So I think, you know, I think more and more with the economic savings that people will start to realize uh, more and more people will make the switch. And I think people will get comfortable with it. I'm really I'm really quite optimistic about that. So Kara, uh, as we finish up here, tell us what are your sort of top three or five myths you'd like to dispel? Uh, and I'll start you off one with Lauren mentioned, mentioned earlier, and that is cold weather issue. Well, like every good myth, there is like a grain of truth in there, right? That's how it, <laughs> how it develops. So there is truth that your range is reduced in the winter. That is a fact. By the way, it's true in a gas car too, but you can just refill. 
uh, with a gas car, people are more concerned about it with an EV because of infrastructure or worrying about where they're going. So what I try to tell people is, look, you've got to look at what you really do in a day, not a mythical number of kilometers that you imagine you need. So people think, well, I need 600 kilometers because that's what I'm used to in my gas tank. But typically, how much do you drive in a day? So if you're a person who drives 100 kilometers a day uh, and you have a car with a 300 kilometer battery, even on the worst winter day, you're never going to get close to, to that range. You're, you're going to be fine. Uh, and so you have to kind of think more about what you actually do than I think in a gas car where you don't have to plan as much. So, so that's so that it is a true, it's a true statement that your range will be less and you just have to be aware of how, how far you're going to go. Any other of your favorite myths you'd like to uh, leave us well, with? I, I do think people think they drive a lot farther than they do. Uh, and maybe it's because we, in the city, we sit in a lot of traffic. So we think that we are driving far, but we're just actually driving long. <laughs> we're, not, we're not actually going very far. And when EVs sit in idle, they don't use very much energy. So you're actually, uh, your, your, your range is actually good. Um, so what we found is when we actually have people track how far they drive, they don't drive very far. And so that means an EV could fit into people's lives a lot more than they think. Uh, and the other thing I would say about that is so many Canadian families have two cars. And so if you're worried about a road trip, which, you know, Canadians love their road trips, which is great. I love the road trip as much as anyone else. Uh, but that road trip could be managed depending with an EV. But if you're concerned about it, take the other car, rent a car, take the train, do something else, because maybe it's twice a year, maybe it's three times a year. And with the money you save, it'll be worth it. You know, so we try to get people to think about the 99% and not the 1%. Good. That's that's really good to hear. It's very interesting to catch up with you and uh, talk about the things that you're most plugged into to use plug and drives <laughs> uh, name associated with this. So thanks very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And it's been very valuable. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks so me. much, Kara. So Jason, do you have any sort of concluding thoughts or takeaways from today's discussion? You know, a really interesting discussion, and there's so much happening in this space and happening so quickly. You know, what it feels to me, though, is that it's really important that we have an honest dialogue about this in the country, about but the opportunities that this brings. I mean, we, we talked a lot about that with Kara, you know, particularly on the pollution side, even the noise side. Can you imagine the reduction in din in cities if you, if you eliminated combustion cars? But at the same time, you know, I, I think we have to be honest about the challenges because there are some potential inequities. We could see, you know, the infrastructure getting left behind a little bit in, in rural Canada or in certain areas of the country. You know, I think of, of Canadians that uh, can't afford electric cars now, but also maybe can't afford the housing that comes along with the requirements for electrical hookups and that sort of thing. So this really permeates into some really important issues for us. How are we going to generate that electricity as the need increases? You know, are we going to be comfortable with fossil fuels that, that is perhaps carbon free through things like CCUS and the like that we've, we've talked about previously, Lauren? And at the same time, how do we make sure that nobody in Canada gets left behind, not a region 
or or not a people. And this doesn't become, you know, a white collar, blue collar thing or a rich and poor thing for those who have have access. I, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how that discussion develops. Yeah, to me, this really continues to fit in with the the and yes. context, which is you know, it's a transition which does not happen instantaneously, far from it. It happens over the course of quite an extended period of time when you're talking about things like replacing and or upgrading the grid. Those, you know, a lot of capital, a lot of planning, a lot of time that it takes. So, you know, again, to be accused possibly of being overly optimistic, I think the and uh, aspect of this is what's most interesting to me because it's there's fossil fuels that are produced and used and help run our economy now. Exactly. And we are going to be developing future technology, current and future technology that's going to come into the stream. And that stream is going to, it, it's growing in my view, at least. I don't think there's anybody that really argues that uh, satisfactorily. Um, and that growth has got to be taken up and that to a great extent that can be and and likely will be taken up by green but these streams are coming together and then the future will be what it is but that's that is a long term these issues are long term issues they require a lot of policy uh, consideration they require a lot of forward planning uh, and then possibly replanning and redo of the policy. Well, um, I'm hearing dollar signs. I'm hearing dollar signs, Lauren. And, and that's how, how do we? I mean, we got to look at how we create. And I know we're going to talk about this going forward. How we create that investment environment so right. that the private sector, because the governments can't afford to do all, all of this when we're talking about you know everything from generation to to the infrastructure required uh, to distribute it. And you know, the, will it be acceptable for fossil fuels if they're produced cleanly with with no carbon footprint or very low carbon footprint? Why can't they play a role? Shouldn't they be a big part of it? It's it's a complex issue, and uh, we're going to continue to unpack it going forward, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to discuss. Well, on behalf of Lauren and myself, I want to extend a huge thank you to our guest, Kara Clareman, for joining us here today and for her work in making EVs more accessible for Canadians. It was a great conversation that I hope we see more of in our country. I also want to say a big thank you to our team, of course, behind the scenes, including Anne Derby, Ian Monroe from Dowling, and my team at Navigator, including Catherine Moore, Kayla Duty, and Zoe Kirsten. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we have some international guests to talk energy litigation. <laughs>